David. We are studying uh, Ezra, but we come now to the book of Nehemiah to find the rest of the story, as uh, Charles Harvey, or Paul Harvey rather, used to, used to say. Uh, we, we find Ezra off the scene for several chapters. Apparently, frankly, not much has been going on. And this is very typical, as we'll, as we'll see this evening, that there seem to be long stretches where no, there's no advance of the kingdom of God or his work in the world, apparently. Uh, long stretches where it seems perhaps there's decline, but uh, not much to note. And, and then a fresh outpouring of the power of God and the Holy Spirit, and there's a great advance. Uh, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah focus on three such times of advance, the uh, great steps that God had taken to restore his people who have now returned from exile. I'll pick up reading at the end of chapter 7 in the last verse and uh, reading now from the context here. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in an open square that was in front of the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him in his right hand stood Meth- uh, excuse me, Mattathiah, Shema, Ani- Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah, and at his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Mahikajah, Hashem, Hashbandah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then the people all answered, Amen. Amen, while lifting their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shebethai, Hodijah, Maegiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelikiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, and with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, and in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, that this powerful word would continue its mighty work. We pray that you would bless and revive your people in our day, and that you have, as you have sent the word to save us again and again, so we pray that you would not delay. But in our land, and as you are doing in the lands, um, uh, in so many places, we pray that your word would go forth, and that it would be like the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I suppose we all have a natural interest in the more sensational times of revival, as they are called, times when God suddenly does great works by his Spirit. Although I realize now that for many years we have not been had much talk about revival, uh, not much thought about it, not much prayer for it. You'll know that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in days past did a great deal to revive the history of God's working among his people when people had long forgotten. But um, maybe in the years since he's passed away, uh, others have not kept along. I've mentioned and preached on it from time to time, but I think it's vital that we continue to have this before us. And I'd like to take this example of a revival Uh, and to uh, consider some important features for which we ourselves should long and pray. Habakkuk 3 says, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known. This is the base meaning of revival. It's not something that man does, as we'll see. It's not even something that happens to God's people only. It's something that God does as he revives his work in the world. The effect of this work by the Holy Spirit is is to reanimate Christians so that they are refreshed and raised up to new vigor and strength and zeal and prayer. It refreshes Christians, but it also converts sinners in great measure, converting and convicting worldly people about the truth of the gospel. In revival, there is renewal of the church. God's people seem to be clothed with new strength and devotion. Some who have been Christians for years suddenly find that uh, they have uh, new energy. There's a conversion, as I say, of those that seem to be most unlikely. 
And the power and presence of God is even felt somehow in the whole community, which might not convert people, but which subdues sin and which promotes godliness in communities and sometimes whole nations and lands. Um, at the, uh, in the 1859 revival in Northern Ireland, there was a, a quarterly constabulary meeting in Belfast, main city there, uh, in which no crimes had been reported for the quarter. That is to say, three months passed in a major city, no crimes had been reported. The next quarter, no crimes reported. Uh, such an effect, such a powerful effect of the revival on the whole community that not only were uh, saints edified and sinners converted, but the, 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 whole, the whole community seemed to be holding their breath in awe. This is a revival, something that cannot be organized or produced by any amount of human uh, zeal or endeavor. It is, as the Bible calls it, a rending of the heavens, God coming down, making bare his arm, and acting in sovereign power. It confounds human calculation. It is not anticipated often, even by Christians, when it comes. Speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is how it happens in an individual Christian life, and when it happens to many lives at the same time, we have what is uh, often called revival. It is this revival in Nehemiah chapter 8 that is before us. We are in the early fall of 445 B.C. Just a few years earlier, King Artaxerxes sent Ezra, the scribe, to Jerusalem uh, in order that he might, among other things, teach the law and restore God's temple and its worship as it ought to be. All that we really know about Ezra so far besides this is that he's a godly man and a student of the law who himself is well awakened and who feels the, the word of God deeply in his spirit. Well, shortly after he arrived, he did lead the Jewish leadership and the nation to put away the Gentile women that they had taken. That's what we saw last time. We now jump another 13 years ahead. In the meantime, they rebuilt the city wall under the leadership of Nehemiah. Um, there's no comment about any real spiritual change in the people. In fact, uh, there's been some traitors among God's people and a good deal of murmuring as well. So if we have any indication of what it's been like, it's, uh, it's been a tough road. Uh, but this is the first thing that uh, we often find in revivals, and this will be the first thing that I mention to you this evening. That when we come here to, to break in now to Nehemiah chapter 8, we find that revivals are often preceded by a time of coldness. Revivals are often preceded by a time of coldness. Again, by the time we come to this chapter, Ezra has been in Jerusalem teaching a few years, though it, it doesn't seem much has happened, spiritually speaking. Nehemiah has labored very diligently now for seven chapters in a mighty struggle to get the wall built, fightings without and fears within. All of God's people were not on board. Uh, it was the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other against their enemies. Uh, it was, as I say, tough sledding. But they got it done and they gave all glory to God. We read about these long stretches of struggle, though, and even decline. We read, we read of such things again and again and again. And, and you know, when, when we read these things and we read, we think, what is God doing in all of these times? I mean, 
when we, when we finally get to chapter 8, we see now it's cooking. Now God is working. What, why didn't they do that earlier? God, why, why are you not working like this in all the time? And, and we, have, we must say, we don't know. Um, you know, I, I suppose we, we might think it might be nice for the sun to shine all the time. But if the sun shone all the time, what will we have? A desert. Uh, God, God somehow does his work in the world in a way that seems strange to us, seasons of this and seasons of that, times apparently of summer sun and times of bitter cold winter. But God is working out his salvation in every age. Some saints, like Nehemiah, have to struggle and suffer for years in a time of decline. And and then sometimes it it seems that uh, multitudes are converted in a single sermon. We we shouldn't think that revivals are the only important times, that other periods are not. The Bible gives us a a very clear balance of these things, even Ezra and Nehemiah's book gives us a very clear balance. We might be more familiar with the names of revival preachers like Whitfield and Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Uh, We do tend to forget the many, many men who worked diligently and prayed faithfully, who did quite a lot of sowing, though often precious little reaping. There are a great many Nehemiahs in the history of the church, or Isaiahs, or Jeremiahs, or Ezekiels, people who labor in in times of the spiritual decline of their nation and see see very little fruit. Um, But God is at work. John Bunyan, Robert Bruce, Matthew Henry, Thomas Boston, for example, are just some of the names of those in the past that that did their work in in times of decline. It seemed that religion had come to a stand and everything was against them, but they labored on, and the blessing on their work was to come after their death. This should caution us against focusing only on seasons of revival. God is patient. Seasons of sowing and seasons of of reaping are appointed by him. And of course, you know that even in your Christian life, it seems like there are times of rapid advance and profound conviction, times when you are learning and growing, and it's very exciting, times when there's really nothing remarkable or sensational happening at all, times that stand out, but times that are uh, like every, every day is the same. But I say that God is working through it all, and so it is in the church. In revivals, God acts suddenly and dramatically, but that is not the usual way. It does seem that both in the Bible and church history, though, revivals are preceded by times of coldness. I'll just give you a a couple more recent examples of this because I I want you to be more familiar, too, with, with the great works that God has done for us in our land many times in the past. Uh, it, it's, it's easy to get discouraged when you, you see the spiritual state of things, you read the newspaper, right? You know, a few years before the Great Awakening, one dying minister wrote to a friend, Brother, brother, he said, we are none of us more than half awake. Before the Great, great Awakening, it seemed like men were sleeping, the world slept, the church slept, ministers seemed to be asleep in their duties, Christians asleep in the pew. Before the Great Awakening, for many years, there have been complaints about a general absence of sound conversion and a decline in the church. Dr. Increase Mather, 
uh, wrote in 1721, 82 years of age. He says, conversions have become rare in this age of the world. They who have their thoughts exercised in discerning things like this have sad apprehensions that the work of conversion has come to a standstill. During the last age, Puritan period, scarcely a sermon was preached without someone apparently being converted. And sometimes hundreds were converted by one sermon. Who of us now could say that he has seen anything such as this? Clear, sound conversions are not frequent in our day. The great bulk of the present generation are apparently poor, perishing, and if the Lord prevents not, undone. Having been a minister for 65 years, I feel like the ancient men who had seen the former temple and wept aloud when they saw the latter. Samuel Blair also uh, about this time, a couple years later, he says, religion lay, as it were, a-dying and ready to expire its last breath in this part of the visible church. The nature and necessity of the new birth was but little known or thought of. The necessity of conviction of sin and misery by the Holy Spirit opening and applying the law to the conscience for a saving closure with Christ was hardly known at all to most and he's talking about ministers, right? Ministers who do not understand the new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit. All right. So what time are we in? Are we in a time of revival? You say, no, Dave, we're in a time of decline in the West. The newspapers remind us. NPR gives us the statistics year over year. We, we, do, we do not see mass conversions and people flocking to the Lord as in other times. And we think, well... Has God forgotten us? Is, is something going on that, that, that the work of the Lord and his kingdom has come to a standstill? Well, I tell you, this has happened many times. And as you read through the scriptures, you read page after page after page of people fighting a good fight. But you think, well, if the Lord didn't bless them, they would have been completely overwhelmed. And then you get to an, the next chapter and fire comes down from heaven. And this is the way that God uses to, re to reserve all glory to himself. It is not the work of Ezra or Nehemiah or Zerubbabel or any of these men that we consider. We are considering a mighty work of God. We need to not become overly discouraged. But when we recognize the signs of the times, we have to remember that there are many who have walked in those times before, but they worked and they prayed. And in due time, they reaped because they fainted not. Well, so we come to chapter 8. We have a period of coldness and decline that we have skipped seven chapters now among the people of God, and revivals are often preceded by such a time. But, point two, revivals are ignited by God's word. Revivals are ignited by God's word. There has been no exceptions of this to my knowledge. In this chapter, Nehemiah, the governor, summons the people to come back to Jerusalem for the first new moon after the harvest and to come and hear God's word read and explained. Nehemiah is a godly man with a passion to restore God's people. They've built a special wooden pulpit and a platform on the occasion so that, uh, that he could speak. Um, and it's really hard to say what they were expecting to happen. You might not expect much from the public reading of the scriptures, which is basically all this was. They would read it, which of course is in Hebrew. The people now are speaking Aramaic, having lived for a generation 
uh, off in far off Babylon. So they have to uh, read it as given, that's the sense of the translation here, uh, read it in Hebrew and then make some explanation to the next generation who can't understand. Well, you might not expect much from the public reading of the scriptures, but when it, what happened though was um, astonishingly blessed, um, like an Old Testament day of Pentecost. They're cut to the heart. Moments like this don't come often in the Bible, but they are some of the greatest moments in the history of the human race, where minds and hearts are suddenly overwhelmed by the power and reality of God in holiness and grace that people weep. There's a, there's a, they're profoundly moved. God came to Jerusalem that day. And understand that this is probably the first time that many of these people had ever heard the word of God read to them. They, they, I'm sure they knew various phrases and prayers and psalms, but so far as we know, there had been no nationwide attempt to teach the law until now. These are God's believing, worshiping people. Yes, if you ask them if their faith was important to them, they'd say, look, of course, we came all the way back from Babylon to build the temple. We're here for the glory of God, but they are in profound ignorance. But on this day, what happened when God's word was read? A great crowd assembled as one man and heard the reading of the law we read. And then verse 8, as they read distinctly, I think that means like literally in Hebrew from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and they helped them to understand the reading. And uh, as they, the people wept, they, they said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord, don't mourn or weep. The, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Why did they see it? Why, why, did they, why were they so affected? Why did they feel it so keenly? Well, put yourself in their shoes. You have just lost your land, your freedom. You've had your sons and daughters become slaves in Babylon. And now hearing back in the land for the first time ever from God's own mouth, why all that happened. As Deuteronomy 28 is read, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and forsake pursue and overtake you until you're destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you and because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you and that chapter ends you're going to be offered as for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves but no one will buy you like generations before them. These people were ignorant of the law. They were ignorant of the curses that would come upon them if they were a lawless people. Maybe the people felt they didn't need to know. Maybe the priests only needed to know the law. But now it seems all at once, as it's read, it comes home to them. Ignorance has led to apathy, an apathy to disobedience. And there is now no difference between the people of God and the people of this world until the people were given over to their enemies. Now they understand what has happened and it comes home to them and it, they weep freely. Don't know exactly, of course, what they read, but something brought them under profound conviction and made it clear. Every revival comes from a new and a powerful hearing of the word of God. I happen to know they were reading in Deuteronomy because of the few uh, quotes that are here about the feast and so forth, but it is the word of God which convicts, which cleanses, and restores. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? 
that word that is sharper than any double-edged sword. So a revival is essentially a powerful, Holy Spirit-led recovery of the word of God. Now, what about today? What about what is our situation? Um, It's not that the word of God is denied on every hand. But as uh, David Wells, professor at uh, Gordon-Conwell, retired now, he said, the truth is denied, but it is ignored. It rests lightly on the church. And this is the... This is the situation, the, the, the profound biblical ignorance. Um, I, I hear people saying, of course, they believe the word of God and, and so forth, and, and that's great. I'm glad that they're not denying it. And yet, how much does that word make it into their thoughts and prayers and uh, the basis of their sermons, right? Um, I can tell what people really believe about the word of God in just a few minutes in a, in a service right? A word that rests lightly, he says, like a child in the house that's being neglected. The child is there but ignored. This is the situation when we are at a time of spiritual decline. But suddenly in revivals, people are willing to live and die by the truth of the word of God. It consumes their mind and their passions and their actions. Now, today, the Word of God is the most widely printed and circulated book in the world in its history. Even unbelieving families, it seems, often have a copy or two around. Even Roman Catholics have been now encouraged by the church to read the Bible in these days. So we must think that we, we, we are surely the most biblically literate and knowledgeable generation in the history of the world, right? I, I just sent the uh, Bible app to my friend, and in the, in the, as I did, I happened to notice that now uh, over a half billion times... This app has been downloaded and shared. It's an enormous number. Uh, Half billion cell phones in the world, at least, uh, have downloaded the Bible. But are we the most biblically literate and knowledgeable generation in the history of the world? You know, um, the, the, the truth is, what was needed in the days of Ezra is still badly needed today. People have not heard, and if they've heard it, they have not understood. Whereas at least in the medieval church, in another time of decline and ignorance, they were required to learn the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and a number of other basic things, right? Do you know what percentage of people can name the Ten Commandments today? I don't mean word for word. I mean just pick them out on a list to know what they are. Do you know how many of our fellow Americans know the Ten Commandments, who could at least identify them on a list. Anyone want to guess? Uh, very, very close. Fifth, uh, 14% at last count. People know Christian phrases, people know Christian verses, maybe a few prayers. Evangelical uh, churches even don't give attention to the public reading of God's Word anymore. I'm surprised sometimes. I go somewhere and uh, the, the Word is not even read. Uh, there's no consecutive exposition. It is talking about relationships and families and other very good things and applying the word of God to them faithfully. But the problem in our day is that the Bible is unknown. It is neglected. It's not that it's not legal. It's widely circulated, but it is ignored. People say their faith is very important to them, but only 10% of Christians 
even care to read it for themselves. I say in the dark ages, people knew the basics, but we have a new dark age of a sort. J.I. Packer writes, the public education system, the media and the press, they all treat Christianity as a dead letter, and now there is not the least encouragement in our culture to become biblically literate. And the net result, he says, is a generation frighteningly and pathetically ignorant of God's word. No significant movement toward God can be expected while this remains so. If we are going to see and have a revival, I tell you, it is going to be a powerful, Holy Spirit-led recovery of the word of God. I'm not here just to complain and say, oh, wasn't it better in the past? The truth is it's been a lot worse. This is how God often works. He lets it get really bad, and then he acts in power. But just so you understand, what do I mean? I mean a Holy Spirit-led, powerful uh, restoration of the word of God in the church and in our hearts. Uh, third, revivals produce, uh, powerfully produce worship and daily devotion. Don't worry, I only have three, three points, but... Uh, the, the effect upon God's people is remarkable. He, uh, he, they weep. They say, look, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't weep. Um, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Don't sorrow. The joy of the Lord is your strength. A great, great verse. The day is holy. Don't be grieved. And they all go and rejoice greatly. And then they're back the next day, which is interesting because, you know, the new moon was only supposed to be a, a, a one-day deal. It's a, a one-day festival. They're back the next day. And they find in the written in the law that the Lord has commanded Moses, the children of Israel, to dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. We say, well, what were they doing back there the second day? They said, we want more. Give us more. And they read more, and they say, do you mean that there's supposed to be this festival which in October, which is the same time that they're meeting, roughly, right? This law commands us to come to Jerusalem and have a whole week here on vacation while the families are camping together outdoors and we're commanded to rejoice and feast? That seems like a good deal to me. Why didn't anybody tell me before? So verse 17, the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths or tabernacles, as it's uh, traditionally translated, and sat under them, for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, successor of Moses, until then the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. They, 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 they come back. They say, give us more of this word. They read about this Feast of Tabernacles, booths, a festival that surely all the children should have looked forward to, right? You see, children, people in Jerusalem would, would come together They'd see their friends and family, and they'd, they'd, they'd all be together camping in, uh, on the rooftops and in the courtyards right at the end of the summer season before the fall rains really, really come in, uh, in the fall and winter in Jerusalem. You, you would uh, camp outside. You would feast. You'd eat special food. It's kind of like Thanksgiving, right? But this lasted a whole week, a great festival. People hadn't celebrated like this in like eight centuries, give or take. But as soon as the word of God came, they say, well, let's do it. And they all come back for a week. Uh, Deuteronomy 16 was the command. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. 
when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow in your gates. Seven days shall you keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in the work of your hands, so that you shall surely rejoice. What a great idea. It was given, of course, to, remember, to remind them of important things. In the celebration of harvest, uh, it was to, re- to rem- remember that God had given them this food to enjoy. It was a kind of Thanksgiving time. It was a reminder, secondly, of the days they spent in the wilderness, and that's why they had to be in these little makeshift tents. God's, God wants them to remember how they had lived, their fathers had lived for 40 years in the wilderness, camping out under the stars, eating manna and quail, while God led them in the way. And third, of course, uh, we think about Abraham and uh, so forth. Even though uh, he had the promise, he realized he was a pilgrim and stranger on the earth, right? Yeah, they had the land, but, you know, they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. And so they still were as pilgrims in the earth. Well, what a beautiful, joyful, meaningful celebration that they had all but forgotten, and nobody even cared to revive until the day that God renewed his people in revival. Suddenly we find multitudes coming joyfully to the feast, and the joy of the Lord is their strength, day after day after day. This, again, very typical of revivals in the Bible. We think about in the days of Hezekiah when the feast was renewed there. We think about Pentecost where uh, the Holy Spirit came down, and the immediate effect was that the people met at the temple day after day. in revivals, people can't seem to get enough of the worship of God. They're, they are sometimes coming to hear the word of God preached day after day, whether there was a plan to preach it or not. They're back. Um, suddenly, there's much more in attendance. There is great vitality. Congregations begin to sing in full voice. The word of God is heard in rapt attention. Prayer meetings are suddenly crammed full. And people are brought to tears over spiritual concerns. This is the work of the Spirit of God. Again, to illustrate to you more recently during the Great Awakening in this country, uh, people said, oh, that was just because of the emotional preaching of a few people, Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, and the others, right? But no, 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 that confuses the cause and the effect. Nobody had been moved by the Word of God previously. Not the pastor, not the people. But suddenly, at the Great Awakening, both preachers and people are stirred to life. And the preachers are weeping. The people are weeping. And they are rejoicing once again to know God's Word. There's one book about Jonathan Edwards that says that it was his preaching on eternity and hell in particular that made a great impression on the people of his day. Because, you know, back in 18th century America, people were much more conscious of their mortality. They were, there was much more death around. People were more brittle and frail, and therefore eh, you could be expected to be moved by that kind of preaching. Well, the problem with that is obvious, friends. Um, There have been many times of mass death and disease in the country, pandemics or wars, you name it, and people are typically not moved in revival in, in such time. I mean, uh, Samuel Miller, who was a minister in New York in the 1790s, he, he writes about it, one great pestilence uh, in which 
in his own congregation, 200 people died, okay, in one, one congregation. But in all of those events, Miller said, he didn't know of one single conversion. And he was a great preacher in his day. His work is still available uh, today. A fabulous preacher at a time of, of mass death and not one single conversion. That's how it is in times of decline. In the great revival of New York in 1857, there was, it was preceded by a almost universal financial collapse. And it was wrongly said that well, as soon as the wheels of industry stopped turning, people could listen to the Spirit of God. Well, okay. There have been many financial disasters in the history of our nation and our world. They do not produce revivals. In fact, people can come through financial times like that hardened against the gospel. We are not talking about anything that can be calculated, any human effect. We are talking about God doing a great work. So, if I've been talking about revival for some time and you thought, well, wait a minute, is that like my church has revival services uh, in a few weeks here? I, I do have to explain something, that it is revival that changes the worship and schedule and life of the people of God, uh, not, not vice versa. So something did happen in the 19th century in America. Uh, Charles Finney and some others, uh, they were great fans of revival and they, they wanted to produce revivals themselves. They set out to produce them. So they observed that in any revival, there are certain common features, as I've pointed out to you tonight and before. So in a revival, people have a great hunger for the word of God, and people just seem to come back the next day and the next day, uh, and churches find it necessary to expand their services to more days of the week, whether it was planned or not. Um, they, they, they come to hear the word preached. And when the service is over, people are often so struck with conviction and grief or joy, they, they simply don't want to go. They, 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 they stay and they hope that perhaps someone will speak to them some word of comfort or guidance or prayer. So they stay afterward, sometimes for hours, sometimes just to pray. Well, Finney noticed all, all of these and, and other things, and he said, um, you know, perhaps if we can arrange these same circumstances, then perhaps that we, we can have a revival, right? Um, so he began a school of revival, and he taught people that uh, you need to uh, schedule some extended meetings, some days in a row, during the week perhaps, perhaps two weeks, and after the services, you're to have after meetings where people are invited to stay or encouraged to talk to a counselor and, uh, and, and so forth. And there, there needs to be s some decision. And so they, they, they made some room up front for some benches called the anxious bench. And they would encourage people to submit to the Lord and to show they were submitting by coming down and, and sitting down there. Um, and that uh, that would be counted as a conversion. Okay. And so people said, if we have all of these things going in the church, if we have, the, if we have meetings during the week, if we have people staying afterward, if, if we have uh, people then uh, publicly making a, a decision, then we are having a revival. The circumstances were, were able to be produced, but the essence was not produced. The Spirit of God could not be scheduled. 
he could not be arranged. And so what's happened is that the idea of a special meeting has replaced the idea of a revival. So people plan revivals now months in advance or years in advance. So I, I say this by way of uh, correction. If you have had some experience with revivals, they can be a great blessing to God's people. Certainly not against periods of preaching during the week and praying afterward and, and, and other things, right? Um, simply to point out that the meaning of the word revival thereby changed. And it's not just a difference in terminology, a vital difference in thought. The earlier leaders of revival no more thought they could plan one that they thought they could raise the dead. In times of decline, they worked, they preached, they prayed, they labored, and they knew that the results were up to God. The revival isn't caused by a change in public worship and its arrangements. A, a profound change in public worship is the result of a revival. In conclusion, uh, 50 years ago, it seems everyone was talking about revival and longing for it, praying for it. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he opened up the Evangelical Library in, 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 in Britain. Many people were able to come there and see pictures of Whitfield and Wesley on the wall, and they had no idea who these people were. Uh, ministers uh, learned for the first time about the th great things that God had done for them in, the, in days past. He started the Puritan Conference and other things, publishing books. And uh, there was a great uh, renewal of the evangelical faith and an interest that uh, has carried us along. I'm very, very thankful for it. People began praying and looking and longing for revival. And there was not a spirit of discouragement, but rather one of expectation. Like, when is the Lord going to answer our prayers? The people of this country were greatly longing for another movement of God that has come again and again in America. People were writing books, reading books about the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, smaller revivals, the New York City Revival of 1857 I mentioned earlier, the revival among the Confederate soldiers in 1864, it was, 63, um, and so forth. Uh, people were, were reading about Cambus Lang, Scotland, and Enfield, Connecticut, and learning the names of the people, and there was this great anticipation not, not too long ago and I don't think that I'm exaggerating to say that in our day, the thought of revival, the hope of revival, and certainly our prayer for revival are significantly diminished just in the last decade or two, and this is not good. Although revivals have always been something of a mixed blessing for the church, as the devil comes right in, read the book of Acts, we must continue to long and to pray for God, to rend the heavens and come down. We may be living in a Nehemiah 1 through 7 time, but we should be praying for the Nehemiah 8 time to come to us swiftly. And how much more will your, holy, will, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, says Jesus. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I've only given a few illustrations of many tonight, but when the Lord makes bare his arm, nations tremble, and how we should long and pray for it again. Oh, let us do so. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, answer the prayers now of many generations as we have looked to you and pray that you would revive your work in our day, here in our land. We are so thankful for the tremendous work 
that you have been doing and are doing in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, in place after place where we see the, 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 the revival of uh, your work to sweep nations in its path. We long for continued sights of such things through the Middle East and Iran now and other places where we are hearing encouraging reports. Oh, Father, do not forget us, we pray. We too here in this country, we long to see the revival of your work. Do not forget us or forsake us. We pray, our Father, that you would revive your church, that you would bake the, the word of God to rest weightily upon us. We pray that we might uh, feel its power, uh, tremble at its threatenings, and rejoice at its promises. We pray that Christ should be all the more precious to us. We pray that our own worship services would be renewed and energized and that we personally would be revived. We know of times in our lives when we have worked mightily, when there has been a great change, when we have known excitement and that we just simply couldn't wait to tell others of the great things that the Lord had done for us. We've known other times, Father, of weariness and discouragement when it seems that any excuse will do not to be uh, about your work. Oh, our Father, we pray that you would forgive us. We, we pray that uh, you would renew us and restore us personally as well, and that your Holy Spirit would be our hope and the joy of the Lord, our strength. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, on the night in which our Lord gave this supper, it was uh, the beginning of a roller coaster for those disciples. Of course, that night they thought that their hopes were about to die with the Lord Jesus. And there, on the next day, as they crucified him, as uh, their Savior shed his blood, they, their hopes surely died with him, for they did not understand. But his promise was good. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, and there their hope revived, and those discouraged, frightened men were turning the world upside down in the days to come, although it was not them, of course, alone. The Holy Spirit being given from the day of Pentecost onward were the one, was the one who testified as they testified and brought many, even those who crucified the Lord, into his church. So it is, you see, that uh, we must remember our, our own profound need that we cannot labor in our own strength. We cannot see success by our own means. We are completely dependent upon the power and presence of the Lord in our own personal lives and together as a church. We come to this table perhaps also in times of discouragement. Perhaps your hope is strained this evening, and this table is meant to be an encouragement even to weak faith. So as long as you are a baptized member of a church of our Lord Jesus and walking in good conscience with him, having professed faith in his name, we welcome you to come to this table that you too might be strengthened in your daily walk. If that doesn't describe you, then please remain seated. But know that the Lord is not going to leave you or forsake you. If there are seasons of winter, as it was when this meal was first given, well, the Lord, though he seems far away, though he seems disappointing, is still uh, remembering and serving you, uh, his blood has been shed for your life. We pray for the, the joy of the, the day to come when the 
the Lord is again alive and renewed in our minds and hearts, and the Lord is pleased to answer such prayers speedily. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this table and its uh, precious promises again to us as we commune in the Spirit of God by uh, that uh, power that is able to join heaven and earth. We pray that uh, truly um, uh, having the, the Lord renewed in us, uh, abiding in him and his word in us, we pray that we would be uh, fitted for the fruitfulness that you've called us to bear for your name's sake. We do renew our love for him. We confess our many sins. We desire a new obedience, and we pray that in all things he would be our, uh, our bridegroom, our all in all. We pray that you would bless us in this meal tonight as taking this bread and taking this cup, that truly our communion would be with Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, wrote the apostle, that the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Blessed be your glorious name, O Lord our God, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Lord. You have made the heaven, the heavens of heavens and all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. In your great mercy, you did not utterly consume those who forsook you, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy. Here we are, your servants today. Because of all this, we are in great distress. We make our lives once again a sure, uh, sorry, because of this we make a sure covenant and write it and our priests seal it. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel.
Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For he says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine till I drink.